The teachings of General Conference are the considerations the Lord would have before us now and in the months ahead. Our marching orders for each six months are found in the General Conference addresses. For the next six months, your conference edition of the Ensign should stand next to your standard works and be referred to frequently. I encourage you to read the talks once again and to ponder the messages contained therein. I exhort you to study the messages of this conference frequently, even repeatedly, during the next six months. You're listening to the Conference Talk Podcast, where it's conference weekend every weekend. Each weekend on the show, we discuss talks from the most recent general conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We'll share some insights, make some connections, and hopefully have a bit of fun as we study the words of the men and women that God has called to direct His Church in these latter days. I'm Matthew Watkins, and I'm joined by a special guest here today, Kurt Frankum from the Leading Saints Podcast. How are you doing, Kurt? Hey, Matthew. Uh, thanks for the invitation. I'm, you know, just like any Latter-day Saint, I, I jump at the opportunity to talk about General Conference. So. so you're a conference nerd, too. Oh, I mean, I think it's, isn't that part of the Temple Recommend questions? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Na- name this obscure talk from four years ago. You can't come <laughs> That's in. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But I'm happy to be here, and uh, I'm excited to discuss this this talk, so. And for those who haven't heard before, I highly recommend the Leading Saints podcast. It's one that I've been listening to for, I don't know if it's a year and a half or two years now, but it's really fantastic. It's got tons of resources and especially check out its website, leadingsaints.com, where you can actually break it down by calling, which I found as an Elder's Corps president is super, super helpful at getting some tips and different perspectives I'd never seen before. Yeah. And you, you don't even have to be a leader. It's not a requirement. You know, if you, you don't need a title or a calling, because uh, we're all leaders in some capacity in life. So every member a leader. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, very cool. Now, switching to the general conference side of things, I want you to share an experience that you've had in your life that's been pivotal relating to general conference. That's something that we tend to ask a lot of our guests. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe a more superficial one to start with is, you know, crepes are synonymous with the general conference around our house. That That's just what is on the menu in the morning as we prepare. And uh, that's, I think I, that's more dominant tradition from my wife's side, even though growing up, you know, we, we had crepes from time to time, but uh, not necessarily during general conference. And so crepes are always on the menu. This is where our listeners are going to find out if they like you or not. Savory or sweet? Oh, I mean, it's always sweet. There we go. Okay. Yeah, That's the correct answer. You may proceed. <laughs> You're wasting a good crave if it's savory. So, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, general conference in, in general, uh, that I think about is on my mission, you know, I served my mission in Sacramento, California. So it wasn't too foreign of a, uh, of a land that I was in, but I just remember, you know, sitting down, you know, back then it was 2001. Uh, we would go to the, the stake center to watch general conference. It was just sort of this sweet connection to home, you know, being raised in the Salt Lake Valley and, and then seeing the, you know, the pan over of the, of the conference center and whatnot. And it just connected me to home and just had a special fin- feeling and, and re-energized me, um, you know, si- every six months as I heard those familiar voices and learned from those familiar prophets. Now I didn't, speaking of looking at people in general conference and recognize them, I didn't really know Elder Hamilton that well before I started reading this talk, which the talk we're reading this or studying this episode is, Then Will I Make Weak Things Become Strong by Elder Kevin S. Hamilton. Had you had any experience with his talks or anything in the past, or is he no, I kind of a black a, sheep for you? Yeah, I think he's a newbie in the in the 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 70, right? And so, I, you know, typically, according to tradition, is 
individuals are called one conference and you can pretty much expect that they'll be on the agenda for next conference. And so I think this was his, uh, his opportunity to, uh, establish his voice in the lineup here and, and share of his testimony. And I think he did a great job. His voice in the lineup sounds like baseball. Well, this rookie That's came right. out swinging because this was he a did. fantastic talk. He did. <laughs> I took, I took so many notes. He, um, when I listened to it, he, he reminded me a little bit of elder Scott in that mm. elder Scott does not have, did elder Richard G. Scott. He did not have the most um, dramatic or catch your attention voice or his way of speaking was very soft and calming and, Sometimes maybe a little soporific at times, but then you read his words when they're printed and it's powerful and yep. it is direct and it is hard hitting. And you're like, how did I miss this when, when it was when it was read in general conference? And Elder Hamilton's talk kind of reminded me along the same thing. I, I, I didn't catch any of the gems that I caught later when I came back and uh, reread it. Whether we intend so or not, you know, if an uh, unfamiliar face... Uh, get stands up, it's easy to maybe mentally check out rather than when, you know, Elder Uchtdorf stands up, you sort of maybe engage more. But uh, I always try and push myself to really lean into the talks and perspectives of the 70 and uh, see, because there's, there's some gems in there and you can find some really solid uh, perspectives that can enrich your, your faith. Yep. And starting out here, the first piece that caught my mind, obviously his analogy about the leopards was, was quite good. But the piece that jumped out to me was he immediately went after this societal obsession we seem to have with authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, and authenticity seems to always be pitted against uh, traditions or establishments or any organ- organization or anything that's structured or has expectations of you, right? And he goes right after that. He says, the world says that we simply cannot change or worse that we should not change. We're taught that our circumstances define this. We should embrace who we really are and be our authentic true selves. And then he just takes that point and runs with it the rest of the talk and goes on to point that yes, we should be our authentic to our real true selves, meaning our divine nature, because that is something even more authentic than whatever labels we attach to. And when I read his talk uh, the past two weeks, I was reminded strongly of the young adult devotional that was given recently. President Nelson, did, did you get a chance to watch that? I did, yeah. He talked about labels and identity, right? Yep, yep. And he says, if our goal is to be authentic to this divine nature and destiny, then we'll all need to change and, and bring in repentance. A wonderful transition he made there between authenticity and repentance. Two things that seem, at least from worldly standpoints, to seem at odds with each other. Yeah, and, and as I review any general conference talk, you know, this is a great perspective to have, especially for those who maybe teach in Relief Society or Elders Quorum uh, around a talk is as you go through a general conference talk, you want to highlight the core doctrines, right? You can just say, oh, well, if it's said in general conference, it must be doctrine. But we, we really have to zoom into the core doctrines of what's being said, because that's a jumping off point for us personally. And, you know, that that shift to repentance, that repentance is a core doctrine. It is It is what this gospel is about. And you know that you mentioned authenticity that as it was stated in, in the talk that there is sort of this uh i guess sometimes it's a passive aggressive battle in in society about authenticity or it's a blatant battle of people dictating what authentic, authenticity is and how it should be um used in life and a lot of people say you know they want i think all of us as humans we crave this level of acceptance and so that's sort of the the uh the argument is that if you want to be accepted, you have to be authentic. And I completely 
agree 100% with that is it begins with authenticity. And I think the messages we hear in the world is that it ends with authenticity. As long as you are authentic, that is good enough. But it is actually the authenticity as we find that acceptance, especially from Jesus Christ, then our faith can begin to grow. Our, you know, We are justified as we realize that we are accepted by Jesus Christ, and then we can step onto the road of sanctification. And that takes some change. That can be uncomfortable at times. That's where the repentance happens is when we mess up and it got to adjust, uh, we become more sanctified. And so this this concept of authenticity is an important uh, concept throughout this, this talk. Now, that authenticity is not an end to itself, of course. People love us when they accept us for who we authentically truly are in our current situation and state, and that is powerful. Yeah. And then it feels a little less loving sometimes when they love us so much that they try and change who we are, which is the way that the Savior loves us. He loves us too much to leave us as we are. Yep. Yeah. It's, and that's such a, uh, a strong principle that he quotes a few people here related to that. I think Elder, he quotes Elder Detoy Christofferson says, further expanded on the gospel truth when we were taught, some are, want to say the Savior loves me just as I am. And that is certainly true, but he cannot take any of us unto his kingdom just as we are, for no unclean thing can dwell there or dwell in his presence. Our sins must first be resolved. And there's this part, you know, that's part of the section. Uh, that's labeled God's conditions. And uh, th- man, this is this concept of condition or conditional is, um, man, it, it is some, um, some sensitive doctrine that sometimes we can easily misunderstand. And even in this concept, as he talks about love, you know, he shares some different conditions of, of God, one being, you know, if you keep my commandments and endure to the end, then you shall have eternal life. Or if he shall ask with a sincere heart and with real intent, having faith in Christ, then he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And then where where this uh, concept of conditions or conditional gets sticky is when we put it in the context of love, because we can we can make the mistake of thinking if I don't act a certain way or if I'm too authentic or um, if I recognize too much about myself, God will then retract his love. Um, but it's, it's actually God's love is, is actually unconditional, but what the, 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 who makes it conditional is ourselves. Whether we can feel it or not. Yeah, exactly. So he uses the um, quote, uh, you know, there's a scripture of, if you keep my commandments, then you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And so th- w- if we just take this scripture at face value thing, okay, if I keep the commandments, then God will love me. But that's not what it says. It says, then ye shall abide in his love. So I often use the analogy of a raging river. And Matthew, I don't know, have you ever been to Yellowstone National Park? I have not, unfortunately. Okay. Well, hey, put it on the bucket list, my friend. It's it's worth worth a visit. So uh, there's this. I want to say it's is it the West Falls or something. Anyways, there's this ma- magnificent waterfall, and they have this observation deck that you can stand on and peer over this fall, and you can just see hundreds of thousands of gallons just rush over this, and you can feel the power of that that river. Now. If I was to walk out into the middle of that river right before the falls, uh, I would be destroyed physically. Like I would be 
cast off that waterfall down, I would fall to my death, right? Well, um, I sometimes relate the love of God to a raging river that we sometimes go to the the banks of that river and we we touch it with our hands or we think, oh, this love of God is so good. Like, I just want more. I wonder if I can venture out a little bit more into this river because I just love the love of God, right? But if we don't sanctify ourselves and become more and more, we won't have the power or capacity to absorb the love of God by standing in the middle of that river. And so what happens a lot is that we can believe the lie that the adversary wants us to believe by maybe we struggle with sin or have an addiction and we think, like, I, I wish I wish I could overcome this. And and we make the mistake that God or that the, the adversary tells us, yeah, isn't it awful that God doesn't love you anymore? As if we think God has turned down the faucet of his raging river of love. When in reality, that river continues to rage regardless of what you do. But as we lean into the covenants, as we lean into commandments and gain the capacity to absorb more and more love, we're actually able to go stand in the middle of that river and absorb all that love and become more like our father in heaven. And it doesn't hurt. Yeah, exactly. And that's, so as we, we start with, when you hear conditions, you know, tread lightly here, folks, because we do not ever want to absorb the mission that God's love is conditional on what you do. His love is always raging for you, and he's always beckoning us into that love as we repent and try harder and become sanctified. He'll get us into the middle of that that river, thanks to the grace of Jesus Christ. You talked about how Christ said that because he obeys and keeps the Father's commandments, he can abide in his love. You know, that abide is really interesting related to abode, it means to live, not just to visit God's love, not oh, just to okay. experience it at a one-time thing, but to live in it. Yeah. And it's it's ever-present, right? And man, and we've all had those grace moments, right? Where we're just enveloped by his love, right? Whether we qualified for it or not, like he just comes to us and, and hits our heart. Like, I, I want to live there every single day because and this will, this will um, launch us into other parts of this concept. Like, uh, you know, the next section is weak things can become strong. Like the more we're in his His love and we feel that, there's nothing more I want to do than keep his commandments. And I, I may even want more commandments. I'm like, God, I, you haven't given me enough commandments. Give me, give me triple as many because these will bless my life. Well, he promises he will. Yeah, he will. In Doctrine and Covenants, he says he'll bless the faithful saints with commandments, not a few. Right. Right. And these aren't like, you know, strict rules or, or burdens. Like these are mechanisms of sanctification that as we feel his love, we'll be thrust into his commandments and be blessed by, by living them, become more like him. And not because we're earning anything, but because we want to become like him. And it's a beautiful plan. When I was on my mission, my mission president changed my life. He uh, got up in his own conference and he held up the 82 page white handbook right? The missionary rules. Yeah. And he read that scripture in Doctrine and Covenants I alluded to, where he says that the faithful will be blessed with commandments, not a few. He said, elders and sisters, if you're faithful, the Lord will give you more. (laughs) And everyone just kind of groaned. And he said, let me teach you something. And he wrote a few words on the whiteboard that I'll never forget. Commandments are the secrets of godliness. Mm. And what a a profound teaching that was, that huge paradigm shift. It's not a restriction. It's not a hoop to jump through. It's not the Heavenly Father wants to have some obedient pets. He wants to raise children to be like he is and follow the same rules and follow the same path to exaltation that he did. 
this is another interesting part about this this uh, dynamic that God has given us with with love and commandments that we can't just say, oh, God gave us commandments. Oh, I guess they're supposed to be blessings, but I don't quite see that, but I'm going to try them out, keep doing it, right? And if we just jump right in the commandments without taking the, the first steps of faith in Jesus Christ and believing that he accepts you and your authenticity right now, like th- without that love, that thrust of love, it's just going... It's not only going to be a mess as you beat yourself up like, oh, man, I they keep saying these these commandments are blessings, but I keep screwing it up. I keep messing up like ah, they don't feel like like blessings. And so you always need the foundation of God's love. And he says here um, right before the requirements of change um, section, he says he he then says that his grace is sufficient, that if we will humble ourselves and have faith in him, then he will make weak things plural, become strong unto us. In other words, as we first change our fallen natures, our weakness, then we will be able to change our behaviors or weaknesses. And we oftentimes try and change our behaviors first, hoping that will propel some type of change of heart. Yeah, it's all those articles online. Do these 10 simple things and you'll see, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But we have to change our nature before the commandments will ever work for us. And the, and the beauty is, is you don't have to do anything to change your nature other than to surrender to God and take his grace upon you. And then the behaviors the behaviors will, will follow. And so we have to first change our fallen natures or weaknesses, then we'll be able to change our behaviors. So if you're in like this turmoil of like, man, life isn't going well, because this is where we get, right? Like there's so many trials, like life's just beating us down. And we think, you know what it was is yesterday, I only studied general conference or the scriptures for five minutes. If I would have studied it for 15, then my life would be going well. Or Yeah, because God's a gumball machine, right? You know, the more you put in, the more you get, yeah. The gumball fallacy, right? Like, oh, I need to up my temple attendance, then he will bless me. When in reality, he is desperate to give us his grace. And, and this is exactly the the part of uh, this next part of requirements of change that he goes into. He, he gives three, um, three re- let's review requirements to change according to the Lord's pattern. He gives three. Now, quickly, they are, first, we must humble ourselves. Second, we must have faith in Jesus Christ. And third, through his grace, he can make weak things become strong. So the first one, if we are wanting change in our life or things aren't going well and we want change, this is this is so crucial. He says, first, we must humble ourselves. The Lord's condition for change is humility. Um, King Benjamin taught that the natural man is an enemy of God and will be forever and ever unless he putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ. Um, and then, uh, so... As far as humble, like when we think of humble, what, what's the opposite of humble, Matthew? What comes to mind? Well, he tells us the opposite of humility is pride. Pride, right? Now, when you think of pride, if you were to describe a prideful person, you know what, what would the characteristics of that prideful person be? Like, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Unwilling to change. Unwilling to change, right. Like, there's almost this conceitedness, right? Like, you think of a, a staunch atheist who just is thinks God's a joke, and of course, I I know better than this magical you know figure you believe in in the heavens. But in reality, this is and that that is a definition of pride. But oftentimes, pride can be just the opposite, and and this is where uh, maybe some mental health sometimes perpetuates this. Where if we think, oh, I'm just not good enough, like, it, and you don't think of a prideful person like that. I'm not good enough. 
God doesn't love me. Nobody loves me. Everybody seems to reject me. Like if we get in that mind frame, that is also a form of pride. Yeah, the victim mentality, when we reject the full and unconditional acceptance of Jesus Christ. And so oftentimes <laughs> I put it in this frame that we've heard it since primary. The first principle and of the gospel is faith in Jesus Christ. But I think there's a first principle to the first principle, and that is acceptance of Jesus Christ. Not just that we believe in Jesus Christ. I remember as a little little boy of five years old, went downtown to the to, to the arena to see Disney on ice. And and during this production, Tinkerbell was in the middle of the ice and she was dying, right? And the little light that represented Tinkerbell was going out. And Peter Pan skated around the ice and said, uh, Tinkerbell needs you needs to know that you believe in fairies. And if she knows that she'll live. Right. And so everybody in the crowd started clapping. Like if you believe in fairies clap. Right. And so here we are. And I, I'm five-year-old. I'm just clapping my heart out. Right. Thinking oh, we're going to save Tinkerbell. And we often put faith in this concept context of we need to, we need to clap and show Jesus that we believe in him. Cause if he knows we believe in him, then he'll save us. It turns into a school pep rally, right? If you can just show enough energy. Exactly. But it's just the opposite. It is Jesus that is clapping and cheering us on and saying, I am right here. Believe in me. Believe in my acceptance of you. I want you exactly how you are right now. You don't have to be any better because with me, we can make you remarkable. We can sanctify your soul, right? And so Jesus is not Tinkerbell. I bet you weren't expecting that to come out of my mouth, Matthew. But <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> But we often think I need to go and read my scriptures and 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 go to the temple, you know, 12 times a month to to in a form clap my hands and show Jesus that I believe. No, what you need to believe is that he accepts you completely right now as you are. You don't have to change one bit. He loves you completely. And then when we feel that love, suddenly we are enabled to move forward and participate in his atonement. Like we, sh we throw these words out so much in, in the gospel, like all oh, the enabling power of Jesus Christ. And, and well, how does that work? I, I, I don't know. It's just like the enabling power, right? But there's some mechanics to this. This is not some magical power that just works and we can't describe it. The reason why we are enabled to keep the commandments and progress is that we first felt God's and Jesus Christ's love and acceptance. And if somebody loves and accepts me, I will do whatever they want me to do because they see me as who I am and who I can become. And so that perfectly goes into the second principle of second, we must have faith in Jesus Christ, right? We've, we've, well, I guess that's the point. We just, but so first we humble ourselves, even when we think that God can't love us, like that's still a form of pride. You need to humble yourself and say, okay, yes, God loves me. He accepts me as I am. Therefore, we're showing faith in Jesus Christ. And then in that state of mind, he can make weak things become strong. He says, if we humble ourselves and have faith in Jesus Christ, then his grace will enable us to change. It's not some magical power. It's because we felt complete love and acceptance. Then we have the, then that naturally enables us to want to keep the commandments and change. And then he continues, in other words, he will empower us to change. This is possible because as he said, my grace is sufficient for all. So again, if we want change in our life, stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to do more and just reach out for his grace that is so abundant and is waiting for you and it will propel you and he'll do the work. When he talks about his, his wife's grandfather oh, yeah, and yeah. his conversion story, 
I resonated to that because ultimately what got him there was not practicing. It was not here, let me, you know, start following commandments and then see if I can force a relationship from there. It was pleading with the Lord to give him the strength he needed to make the changes in his life. He wasn't at, he wasn't saying, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to force myself to do all these things I really don't want to do right now and then see if I can forge a relationship with God that way. He was saying, you know what, what I need is the dramatic change of heart. I need the no more disposition to do evil. I need the feeling in my spirit and in my soul that will motivate me to do what I intellectually know that I should do. I need the power and the motivation to do that. And I, I learned that when I was a teenager um, in a good chunk from reading um, Brad Wilcox's books, helping me understand the nature of Christ's atonement. Oh, yeah. I always looked at Alma the Younger's experience talking about being harrowed up and reading how, how no unclean thing can enter the presence of God and thinking, oh, I've got to, you know, I've got to play whack-a-mole with all my sins before I can even think about feeling God's love when that is exactly the opposite order. It's a lot easier to play whack-a-mole with your sins when you know that there's a reason to do so and you feel like you want to do it. Elder Klebingott in his 2014 talk said another piece that stuck with me. He said, you cannot love God without also loving God's commandments. Hmm. Now, how is that possible? Because commandments, you know, even at our best times can seem kind of tedious. And it's from that love that you mentioned that when we feel God's love, we inherently and instinctively want to obey. Um, I remember when I was young, my, uh, my dad was, was, you know, working all the time and he'd come home really tired. And I looked through our, our scant little Disney movie collection and thought, I think that my dad's favorite movie is Fantasia because he likes classical music. <laughs> and so that was not my piece of cake as a five-year-old. That's uh-huh. not, you know, and this is the original Fantasia, right? Right, right. Yeah, that, that was not at all interesting to me watching a bunch of rocks moving around and butterflies and dancing toadstools and whatever. But I knew that my dad liked it. And so when I'd see his car pull into the driveway, I'd immediately run and grab that tape and put it in the VCR. Not because I liked it, but because I knew that he didn't. I wanted him to be happy. And that was enough for me. And I think that's kind of what Heavenly Father is looking at for us, for commandments that are more difficult for us that we don't necessarily understand all the time. You know, Adam, you know, when he's offering sacrifices and the angel says, why are you doing that? He says, well, gee, I wish you would tell me that, you know, where he says, you're doing it. He's doing it initially because he loves God so much and he felt God's love and he felt the unconditional aspect of that love that made him want to do whatever he could for his father. Yeah. And, um, you know, in this, in the end, he uses these examples of change, which you referred to, um, you know, his wife's grandfather that it even says in there that he had acquired a number of bad habits and nowhere did it say he first got rid of his bad habits. And then he decided to look into this, uh, this Jesus thing. No, it was that he, he moved in with his family member. They accepted him. They felt the level of love. He felt the level of love from them. And he then leaned in and his heart was changed. And then he, he progressed, right? And just these other examples, he talks about Saul, Alma, Alma the Younger, Moses. Uh, I mean, throughout the scriptures, this is the story of God, of taking the ordinary, making them magnificent through his love, acceptance, and and commandments. And I mean, you think it's about Saul, like, what did he do on that road to deserve that, you know, Jesus himself would, sh- would show up and, and change him. He didn't deserve any of that, but God changed his heart. And then he became a remarkable apostle we know as Paul. In Jacob 5, we read the allegory of the olive tree. And we liken it to the tribes of Israel. We liken it to God's people. We also liken it to ourselves personally. 
One thing that is interesting to note, an olive tree cannot prune itself. It cannot dung itself. It cannot do anything for itself. All it can do is respond to the actions taken, sometimes by growing and sometimes by decaying. Mm, I like that. And sometimes I think that we have this attitude in the church. We sometimes seem very oppositional in the way that we define our doctrines, right? Well, if most of Christianity is very grace-based and maybe to an extent that, you know, even just saying something and not doing it is good enough. Well, we're going we're gonna to highlight how different we are in that regard and focus a lot on works. When in reality, the Savior's standing there and he says, you're, they both have a component in your salvation and they're two completely different tools to accomplish two completely different things. Mm-hmm. You know, one, you, show, you use your works to show gratitude for the grace that I extend to you. You're not saving yourself. Um, whereas sometimes maybe we tend to focus too much on our own efforts and then beat ourselves up when those efforts don't pan out. Satan wins at either extreme. He wins when we completely abdicate any responsibility for our salvation. And he wins when we try and save ourselves too. Okay. And I think Elder Hamilton did a good job talking about that when he, when he talked about repentance. Um, one of the things that Elder Hamilton brought up, he brought up humility and repentance a lot. And I'm reminded of some seemingly contradictory or ironic statements from the scriptures and from President Nelson in regards to those. We read in the Book of Mormon in Helaman, where he describes the righteous as growing stronger and stronger in their humility. Mm. And you usually think of humility as being a strength. You think of humility, meekness rhymes with weakness. It's, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's Marty McFly's dad, George McFly from back <laughs> to the future is completely submissive and letting everyone, well, everyone, yeah, that's someone who's humble. That's someone who's meek. No, it, it's, it's strength. It's a yeah. strength that enables us to change. I love all the, the, the pop culture references we have in this episode. This is good. This is my, this is my <laughs> kind of uh, podcast episode. So. <laughs> Well, if Elder Uchtdorf can talk about airplanes, I can talk about movies, That's right. right? That's right. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Actually, I heard Elder Bednar reference Back to the Future in a podcast that he did. So I'm claiming All it's right. okay All and right. it's doctrinal now. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, President Nelson, uh, when he was teaching about repentance, I think it was 2018 or 2019, his landmark talk, he used a word about repentance that you would not normally think to associate it with. He used the word ennobling. Mm. Now, that is so profound and so powerful. Repentance seems like something that's maybe humiliating, right? Seems like something where we're, we're descending lower and recognizing that we're less than the dust of the earth and painful and, you know, kind of drags us down. But as President Nelson, and President Nelson's, of course, quoted throughout Elder Hamilton's talk several times. Yeah. He says, no, ennobling is what lifts uh, repentance. It's ennobling. It makes us noble. It makes us into the kings and queens and and gods and goddesses that Heavenly Father eventually wants us to become. Yeah. It is it lifts us up and sanctifies us, or rather allows Christ to sanctify us. Yeah, that's where my mind went when you you know, breaking up that word word when I hear, think of noble, I think of royal or or being a king and queen, right? And and this is the path. And that is that is sort of you know, we learned throughout the our gospel experience that that is the path we're on. God is wanting to make us like kings and queens, right? And it's a, a noble path and an ennobling path to repent and continue to grow and, and get better. So we weren't supposed to be born and suddenly be royalty. He, he will make us royalty. Well, and to bring your analogy of the raging river of love, which by the way, I'm, I'm going to love and use from now on. Please do. <laughs> that ennobling path that destiny that he has for us is incomprehensible to us 
And if he were to try and, you know, show us everything that we should be doing and the kind of people that we were supposed to be right now, it would just be completely overwhelming. Elder Lawrence in, I think it was 2015, gave a great talk called What Lack I Yet? And he taught that, yeah, God doesn't expect us to do everything at once. He gives us a lot more than we can handle in terms of suggestions and counsel and ideas and everything. And we'll work on that set right now, but we should not expect that we can play whack-a-mole and hit everything all at once. We are to pray and ask, what is the most important thing for me to work on? What should be my number one priority that's going to give me like, not not to be, you know, to make this, to diminue it, not to make it smaller too early, the best bang for my buck, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What What is the number one focus that I should have? And that, as I've been practicing that, that's been something that's really changed my attitude toward repentance and toward uh, spiritual improvement in the gospel overall. Awesome. Well, this has been great, Matt. I don't, I don't have any other zingers. You've, you've gotten them all out of me. So, you know, uh, I would definitely encourage people to go check out Elder Hamilton's uh, talk. I did l- look it up briefly. He has been a general authority since 2013. So he's not a newbie, but uh, I think this is his second time speaking in general conference. So anyways, not to, I don't want to shortchange Elder Hamilton here, but uh, obviously we're, we're glad uh, he's, he's speaking. We'll speak again, but uh, man, I just uh, look forward, you know, is, is it, uh, is it October yet? It's time for general conference. Let's do this again. And it's like the LDS Super Bowl. That's right. That's right. And so I always look forward to learning from, from our prophets and apostles and that they, are very much an epitome of leadership as, as we have examples and whatnot, you know, they play a different role, you know, they we're we should expect different type of leadership from them as our Bishop, because our Bishop's local and they're general, but uh, nonetheless, they, their faith, their testimony, uh, the way they prepare their remarks and deliver them, the, the focus on the doctrines. I mean, that's one of the best leadership uh, actions we can take is to, figure out what our leaders, what, what doctrine our leaders are talking about and then uh, perpetuate those, those doctrines and apply those doctrines and let them nourish our lives. So, yeah. And the doctrines that Elder Hamilton brought up, humility, faith, and repentance. <laughs> yeah. Can't go wrong with those. So. The more that we do those, the, the better leaders we are too, hopefully. Well, thank you so much, Kurt, for jumping on with us. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us for another episode of the Conference Talk Podcast, where we discussed Elder Hamilton's address, Then Will I Make Weak Things Become Strong. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star rating. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and anywhere you get your podcasts. You can find all the links on our, to our platforms on our website, conferencetalk.org, where you can also follow us on social media, drop us a comment, check out the show notes, find related talks, or learn more about your hosts. Big thanks again to Kurt Frankham for hopping on mics with me today. You can follow him at the Leading Saints podcast at leadingsaints.com. And you can follow me, Matthew Watkins, at my blog, powerinthebook.com. But while we do always appreciate new followers, it's even better to follow the prophets and the apostles themselves. And remember, while we love speaking about the church, we do not speak for it. Everything said on this podcast represents our own personal opinions and not the official positions of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Tune in next week for another episode of the Conference Talk Podcast.